Hey guys, it is Ryan. I'm not sure if you know this about me, but I'm a bit of a fun fanatic when I can. I like to work, but I like fun too. It's a thing. And now the truth is out there. I can tell you about my favorite place to have fun. Chumba Casino. They have hundreds of social casino style games to choose from with new games released each week. You can play for free anytime, anywhere And each day brings a new chance to collect daily bonuses. So join me in the fun. Sign up now at chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. With the Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. At info at thesportscircus.com. That's info at thesportscircus.com. Drive your sales today by advertising with the Sports Circus. KCAA Loma Linda. 10.50 a.m. 106.5 FM. And now 102.3 FM. California headline news. The San Mateo County Sheriff's Office today announced the arrest of 74-year-old John Gatru of Hayward in connection with the 1974 strangulation murder of Janet Taylor. Assistant Sheriff Greg Rothhaus read a statement from the family. We have missed being able to have her in our lives. Janet's future was bright. It would have been wonderful to see what she would have done. We can't ever know all that we missed. Gatru is also a suspect in another cold case murder from 1973. A 33-year-old woman has been arrested for trying to kidnap two young children in two days. She's accused of grabbing a four-year-old boy at a McDonald's Tuesday in downtown L.A., but when a witness stopped her, she ran off. On Wednesday, she's believed to have grabbed another four-year-old boy's hand while on the street, but a witness stopped her again. And finally, BART's already delayed fleet of the future is further delayed. The full rollout of the 775 train cars is not expected until the spring of 2023. The extra delay is due to issues discovered on the train cars. Steve Clawson. California News. Here's Howie Long for Skechers Wide Fit Footwear. I'm six foot five, and I can tell you there are certain challenges in life that only big guys understand. Regular clothes don't fit. Heck, regular cars don't fit. But when it comes to shoes, Skechers gets it. That's why I wear Skechers Wide Fit. They've got extra room throughout, giving you room to breathe. And they've got Skechers exclusive air-cooled memory foam for comfort that lasts all day long. Find Skechers Wide Fit at a Skechers store near you or wherever stylish shoes are sold. Skechers, comfort included. You can't feel the thrill of doing something by watching someone else do it. You gotta get out there and do it for yourself. That's why Firestone is offering up its industry-leading 90-day buy and try guarantee. Try our durable, dependable tires out for 90 days, and if you're not satisfied, we'll refund or replace them for you. So what do you have to lose? Absolutely nothing. Whatever you drive, drive a Firestone. Conditions apply. See FirestoneTire.com for details. NBC News Radio. I'm Brian Shook. President Trump says his new immigration reform plan will help all of our people. Our proposal is pro-American, pro-immigrant, and pro-worker. Speaking at the White House today, Trump said it will create a fair, modern, and lawful immigration system. The Missouri Senate is passing a bill banning abortion after eight weeks of pregnancy. The legislation passed today in the Republican-led Senate by 24 to 10, but still needs another vote in the House before it can be sent to Governor Mike Parson's desk. This move comes after Alabama Governor Kay Ivey signed a strict abortion ban into law. The law makes nearly all abortions illegal, except in cases where the mother's life is in danger. President Trump's annual financial disclosure report is out. The report says Trump earned at least $479 million last year. Breaking precedent with prior presidents, Trump has maintained his interest in the business empire he built. Brian Shook, NBC News Radio. Hi, everyone. It's Yanitza Munoz from the publications Maxim, FHM, and Sports Illustrated. So being a model, I have to work out a lot. It's tough staying in shape, especially keeping my abs. Until I discovered TC1 Gel. TC1 Gel is a thermogenic gel that you rub on your waist 15 minutes before exercising. Then simply put on the TC1 sweat belt and start your workout. You'll sweat like crazy and feel the burn. It focuses on boosting circulation, increasing perspiration, 
It activates body heat, reduces muscle fatigue, and burns off more calories. Get your TC1 gel now. Go to tc1gel.com and use the code RADIO30 for 30% off discount on this amazing product. tc1gel.com and get your abs back or just get in shape. Follow their Instagram at tc1gel. I always hear from our clients who hired another firm that they wish they'd hired DNA Financial first. Don't have regrets about your IRS tax case. Just hire the best in the first place. One owed 150000 to the IRS and had spent thousands on another firm. We stopped the levies, negotiated a payment plan, and had their penalties forgiven. And while every case is different, we guarantee that we'll find your perfect resolution and get it done right. For a free consultation, call us at 866-201-0156. That's 866-201-0156. Then you can say, DNA, DNA did, did right, right by me. me. Hey guys, this is Andrew Caravella. Just wanted to let you know that KCAA has a new listener line for all of you that have a phone. Now you can listen to KCAA in the grocery store, in the doctor's office, or when you want to pretend you're on the phone with someone just so that creeper will leave you alone. Call 720-835-3099 today and listen to your favorite KCAA radio shows. That number again, 720-835-3099. KCAA Radio, the station that leaves no caller or listener center behind this is kcaa NBC News Radio Broadcasting Studios of KCAA, 1050 AM, 102.3 FM, and 106.5 FM, located in beautiful, sunny California, which it is now because it was raining earlier. Thanks for tuning into the Water Zone. I'm your host, Rob Starr, along with our great host, Mr. Chris Davey. Good evening, Rob. How are you? I am fine. Tired, busy. Uh, that goes double for me. So, yes. yeah, this, uh, uh, this week. And how about this weather? It's the middle of May, and it's pouring with rain in Southern California. It's great. Shut the fridge. What is happening? Yep. We got more water than what we can do with it. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> That's probably not true, but uh, it's, it's nice to see that. Uh, just for our listeners, we were on our way here, and there was a... Uh, Kind of an accident happened over at the March Air Force Base. Yeah, there was very, very late afternoon news. Looks like a F fifteen, F sixteen, a crash near March Air Force Base. Yeah, pilot ejected on the uh, tarmac, and the plane crashed into a building. Yeah, that's pretty much all we know right now. And it's got loaded ordnance, so and they shut yes. the freeways in both directions. And uh, took us a little long to get here to the studio because of the traffic, but we made it in time and. Uh, Anyway, we're ready to go. We're rare, and we got great guests. And our first one up today, as always, is Miss Chris Austin, who is the purveyor of Maven's Notebook, and she is the expert, bar none, of information about water in California. And she's got some great news about what's happening with the water tax. Right, there, Chris? Yeah. Well, it looks <laughs> like the water tax is dead. Uh, at least at, at this point, uh, they're they're working on another plan, but they haven't really found, uh, haven't really identified a funding source. So we'll see. But it looks like uh, like they did manage to get the water tax, uh, you know, stalled or you know, put in a suspense file, which means essentially dead. Yep, and, uh, and, and you know what? They're all singing in unison back there in Sacramento. Show me <laughs> well, the money, show me the money, the, show uh, me the money. <laughs> I was up at the Aqua Convention last week in Monterey, yeah. yes. and uh, the water agencies are really, really against this um, for, a new, for a number of reasons. Um, one of them is uh, that they, they feel that once the state starts taxing our water bills, that those taxes will grow, um, that they'll add on other things to those taxes. Right. And and they're, they're also, so they don't want to be the tax collector. They don't want to have to do the extra paperwork. And as a former bookkeeper that used to have to file those sales tax returns, I'm, I, I do understand what a pain in the you-know-what it was to file those forms. And, you know, they have... Uh, these water agencies have billing systems that would have to be 
uh, upgraded or modified in order to impose this tax. So, you know, it's not, you know, they had some very valid arguments about it. Um, and also, you know, part of the reason why um, the water is contaminated in those areas is a lot uh, because of historical farming practices. Right, and water, uh, agents, and water agencies like the guy from Eastern. Remember we were at the, uh, you, you were attending the uh, uh, municipal water of, uh, of a district of Orange County. Uh, their symposium, and they had a gentleman who was the general manager of Eastern Municipal Water, and he he was rejecting that because he didn't feel that they you know they should take on a burden of trying to fix all of that stuff in some of the areas. It's going to cost them millions of dollars, and where are they going to get their money? Yeah, and you know it's it, it's a really thorny situation. Um, the, I mean, the some people have even said you know there's plenty of people in California in Southern California, and you know we could fix this problem easily by just taxing, you know, consumer water bills in Southern California, but it's not really our problem. Uh, so, so at any rate, the water tax is dead for now. Um, that you know, Somebody else may decide to reintroduce it. Uh, who knows? But um, it looks like they're going to be looking towards other types of funding uh, to solve this Problem. Yeah, well, it's just one less tax, but somewhere somebody's got to find 150 million dollars to. Uh... Yeah, yeah, and I should, and we should point out, you know, it's not. We actually do have pockets of areas here in Southern California that have uh, bad water. Uh, they had a water agency in Compton, a very small one, that they just took over because it was, you know, they were serving brown water. To their customers, and their customers got mad. So, you know, they're now working to fix that water system, but it's under state control. And the city of, I believe it's Maywood, has a problem with um, naturally occurring, um, I believe it's manganese, and it just happens to be naturally occurring in the aquifer. Uh, not no, Nobody put it there, put it that way, nobody that they can blame. And and they need to get that water cleaned up, but again, it's very expensive. So we, it's not. While it is mostly a Central Valley and uh, you know Central Coast sort of problem in the agricultural areas, it's not strictly limited to those areas. There are other other pockets of bad water that exist in the state. So and hopefully this would address some of them. Uh, they, at least all of them, well, we will hope, right? Uh, but they have, you know, they've been working on forcing, well, I should say strong-arming, some will say forcing, uh, consolidation, because uh, in a lot of instances, and certainly I'm sure as they are going to find in the case of the uh, the water district in Constant, I believe it was called Sativa Water District or something like that. That's correct, um, Sativa, yeah. Yeah, that's... They will probably find that there is a larger water system right next door that could take that over that water system, you know, plug into it and and manage it better than it had been managed in the past. So, you know, the state water board is, you know, strong arming uh, community or water districts into taking on these other community water systems that have problems, which I think ultimately. I, I, you know, I can understand, I guess, why they, they, you know, don't feel like they want to be forced to do that. But ultimately, uh, that's, I think, a solution for a lot of these water systems. Is they just need the expertise and, and the capital. You know, there's economies of scale. If you're a larger water district, you can do things for less because you have more customers. And, you know, you, you know how it goes. Right. You Sure. You order one thing, sure. you pay one price. You order ten of them, you might get a discount. Yeah, it's just it. the law of economics. Right, right. Make it up in volume. Yep. Yeah, yeah. So, so hopefully we'll see some movement, but it's not going to be a water tax. Yeah, that's good though. Yeah, yeah. Somebody will think of another one. Yeah. Hey, so, <laughs> so on on the on the next subject, Rob and I talked a little bit about it in the introduction with uh, the rain we got here and another storm due to come into Southern California early in the week, and a third one after that uh, near the end of the week. So, what is happening? 
Oh, my word. Well, we're having some of those shifting climate patterns, I believe. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's amazing here. We're having some late-season uh, rain. They're actually getting snow up in the Sierras. Uh, yeah, so, I heard, heard that this know. morning on the news. I couldn't believe that. Yeah, six inches to a foot in some places, wow. right? And uh, I, yeah. I, I heard one of the reports mention the atmospheric river. I've got to believe that, that, was, that that's got to be over and done with, but apparently not. No, no, we have a, apparently a few more of these storms that are going to come in, which is only going to help, you know, boost our, our water supplies this year. And while it is unusual to have uh, rain, in, you know, for us here in Southern California in this cold weather at this time, yep, we al- if you think back, we actually have had uh, cooler weather in May uh, in recent years than perhaps we've had in the past, and I'm just speaking empirically from my own observations. But, you know, um, we've actually had a, a few uh, summers where it starts off being very, very mild. Lucky Land Casino, asking people, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kid's PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. I can remember a few years ago, you know, kids didn't want to go to the beach. It wasn't hot. Yeah. Why do we want to go there? Yeah, then we paid for it in August and September. <laughs> oh, yeah, I know. It doesn't mean that it's any better on the back end. But, we, but you know, things, things definitely seem to be changing. And, and this year, uh, we've had quite some wild weather patterns, really all over the country. Yeah. Like, see, we've, there's so much rain that the United States, the 48 states have, you know, got this year, that... Hardly any state, any part of any state is considered in drought. I mean, the splash of yellow, it's all white, meaning no drought. And there's like a splash of yellow, I believe it's down sort of towards the southern border. But yellow is the very beginning of drought. It's like, it's a little mild. Right. So it's amazing. It's where, you know, the United States is practically, completely, absolutely drought-free. Now, in the Midwest, they're having lots of floods. And it's actually, I think it's a story we haven't heard much about, but it's actually, uh, you know, they continue to have uh, flooding issues. I believe I'm seeing some of these stories float by. Yeah. No pun intended. No. Well, you know, one one of the things that that I was thinking about the other day is this, uh, the, the deadliest fires that we had six months ago. In California, and you know, we talked about the last time about the elevated levels, <clears throat> excuse me, of uh, cancer-causing benzene, and they found other things, such other heavy metals, from aluminum to selenium, other chemical contaminants. You know, they're they're, they're you know the the electrical co- electric companies are, or utilities are saying they're going to file bank or have filed bankruptcy, and they got no money and. You know, what are they going to do, aside from burning down everything in the city of Paradise, which isn't Paradise anymore, um, what are they going to do about all the water issues they got? I mean, that's... Yeah, it's, it's um, I mean, it's really tough. And, you know, there's one thing that I think that I, I want to point out about these fires, um, that, I mean, these, these have been some very bad fires that they have had in Northern California, and we have had our share of them down here. But one thing to point out is that the way that Southern California has built in, in the recent decades on what they call the urban wildland interface, or where, you know, the houses end and wilderness begins, um, out here in Santa Clarita and certainly in Riverside and the Inland Empire, we've certainly learned how to build on that interface. And all the housing developments out here in Santa Clarita are surrounded by these extensive green belts that are filled with ice plants and are irrigated, and those provide a buffer between the wildlands and the housing development. 
and we have had fires out here in Santa Clarita, and we see them burn up to the edge of these green belts that they have around here. And that's when the fire helicopters and the tankers come in, and they drop the water right at the edge of where the buffer zone is to the wildland, and they stop the fire there. Um, And in the 22 years that I have lived out here in Santa Clarita, in those newer housing developments surrounded by these green belts, we have not lost one house. They have had to evacuate. And they have the firemen right there, you know, making sure that no embers fly onto the houses. But we, you know, but the the houses themselves in these new developments, not one, not one has burned. Oh, that's, the that's... kind that have burned are the ones that are nestled into the trees, you know, that, are, that the, the ranch-like places, the people that are more out in the open. Yeah. And so in some of these places, like in Paradise, those are... That that was how those buildings were. They didn't. They weren't surrounded by green belts. They were surrounded by forests. Yep. And that's what people like. I yep. mean, and and I I agree. I, I that's why that's why people bought there. Yep. Uh, but so it's important. I, at least I want our listeners in Southern California to understand that we we have built a little bit better against these risks. And you know, these are old older housing developments and and they don't they don't build the same way up in northern california as we do here in southern california no, there is there is one correspondent who quoted some lady and <clears throat> said if my kids get cancer in 20 years i'll never forgive myself and the uh, paradise homeowner jessica DiStefano said when she and her family moved into their dream home last summer they never imagined this would be their reality and and you know what scares me with this is is is, is that okay so the utilities saying that they're going to go broke and they can't take care of this. And then I think the state of California passed a law, am I correct, uh, in this, where where that uh, the uh, uh, taxpayers are going to be help pay for some of this stuff back. We're going to guarantee that because their insurance of right. the utilities didn't. And, and, you know, so that's just another tax that we're going to get. And yep. it's not solving the problem. All they're doing is kicking it down the road and pushing it on other people. I mean, it's like, hey, we got something to do, but we don't have any money. Ah, no problem. Let's, let's do a fee or a tax and we'll get more money. It just seems like well, that's yeah, what, uh, you know, and it's it's really. I I mean, I don't I don't really know what to say. I mean, I understand you know the anger, the power companies and their power lines. But I mean, we went through this uh, earlier. I, I think last year in the fall, and we were having to win. So the legislature says, "Okay, you're responsible." So. Yeah. The, the utilities say, okay, it's windy, we're going to shut down our power line. And then everyone screams, but now we have no power. Well, so but, 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 aren't, but, but aren't, aren't, isn't the, the state or the county or the locals responsible for managing the forest, getting rid of all the, the dead, <laughs> the dead well, wood? <laughs> when you have, but when you have uh, uh, tra- electrical transmission lines that cross, you know, hundreds, thousands of miles through rugged terrain uh, you know in some areas yes they can maintain these through rights of way but in some places these uh these these transmission lines are crossing uh wilderness no. and i don't think do we really want to denude our fire li- our, our transmission lines you know all everything across the entire wilderness uh, you know that's not that's not good either it's a expensive and hard to maintain. No, I agree. You know? I mean, to me, it would have been a plan before they put up all these poles and towers to say, hey, you know, this thing could happen. You know, I, 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 would, I would think, I know when they do, when FCC, somebody puts in a microwave radio or, or some transmission for data transfer, they have to do an environmental study and see Where's where's the signals going to pass through? Is it yeah. going to have any blockage? Is it going to interfere with an airport, a police department, a fire department? I mean, doesn't I, I don't know anything about that. I mean, what I'm what I'm talking about here, saying saying that doesn't somebody when they plan to put utility lines up, doesn't some organization have to check that and see that that it is a clean shot somewhere and it's not going to be you know put through a dead forest and you know yeah you know I don't know I to be honest. Uh, you know, I I don't think that we would really uh, expect 
that over, you know, I think about where these transmission lines come from. You know, we we don't generate a lot of our own power down here in Southern California. We have some generating stations, yes, but right. we there are lines that cross, crisscross the state and actually the entire nation, and they go through very remote areas. They, you know, over mountain passes that are, are you know, you wouldn't be able to get equipment in there to remove the trees in some of these cases. Um, you know, power lines, by the way, are very actually very controversial. You know, we all love the idea of solar farms in the desert, but we certainly don't want those power lines coming through our neighborhood. Well, I can tell you, um, as, I, I can tell you as a ham radio guy and an electronic engineer, <laughs> if you take a fluorescent tube from a ceiling, okay, and you take it out and put it in your hand and you go out by one of those lines and just hold it in your hand up in the air, you can light that tube just by yeah, holding it I, in your hand. I, I wouldn't want to live next to a power line. No. <laughs> I mean, we have neighborhoods here that they nestled in amongst these power lines, and I've been standing out there on the street, and you can hear them buzzing. I oh, can't yeah. imagine. Yeah, yeah. All through your house, you open your window, you're going to have buzzing. <clears throat> I mean, that would drive that alone would drive me nuts. I wouldn't want to live next to these power lines, but people do. Yeah. And, and people object to the idea that they're going that there's going to be more of them or a new power line that perhaps is going to come through your neighborhood that you know that needs to bring in that wind power from the Antelope Valley or from these you know solar desert panel places that we have cropping up all over the place. Yep. I mean, desert solar farms are very popular, but. Yeah. You know, you got to pull that electricity into the grid. It's got to go on a power line, and you know, this it's these aren't popular projects. Not the power lines. The renewable energy is, but the power lines themselves right. are not. And, right. and I get that. You <clears throat> right. know. Well, while well, we got a couple of minutes left, uh, Chris, let's talk about another damn issue. And I mean that sincerely, Shasta Dam. <laughs> um, so, so a story, a little bit of a, uh, a little bit of a, a battle over the dam is escalating this week. I see in the uh, papers. Which dam are we fighting about? Shasta. Oh, so oh, oh, yeah. Oh, I did not see that coming. Me neither. The, the California. I mean. No, it's no surprise that anybody is going to file suit over any project in California. Not a surprise, but the California... Well, they're saying the project is unlawful, you know. (laughs) (laughs) Well, yeah, you know, there's been some question as to whether, you know, uh, the state of California could even participate in the, the raising of Shasta Dam. And I do believe that they passed the resolution uh, many years ago, decade or two ago, saying that they would not participate. And we have this thing called the Wild and Scenic Rivers Act. And so, you know, if they raise this dam, it's going to be affecting some of these rivers that are supposed to be protected. And, uh, I mean, Shasta Dam is really controversial. And there yeah, is an Indian tribe up there that has already lost a lot of their ancestral land in the, the initial chest the dam, which only stands to lose more if they raise it. And now we're going up the McLeod River, and we're affecting even more tribes and stuff. Right, um, right. So it's not just the habitats that could be affected. It's cultural stuff and, and communities and, and, and other things. Oh, yeah. I mean, there, there's a lot here. The, the Shasta Dam, raising Shasta Dam is not particularly popular in the state. As a matter of fact, for years, you know, these past few years, as we've been talking about adding water storage to the state, like nobody ever jumped up and down for raising of Shasta Dam. People <laughs> talked about, you know, temperance flat more. Farmers want temperance flat. They don't want to pay for it. We have Sites Reservoir, great support, community support for Sites Reservoir, which is off meaning it's not going to flood up any any river, um, and it's just going to flood up some, you know, a couple farms uh, that people are willing to let go of. Uh, you know, it's very, it, it, that 
in that instance, is very uncontroversial. But, you know, Shasta Dam, nobody talked about Shasta Dam. Oh, yeah. And then all of a sudden, out of the blue, Westland says, you know, okay, we're going to uh, be... Because the federal a federal agency cannot come in and build a project in a state without a local partner of some sort. Is that the local agency or a state agency? They need some. They need to have a local or state partner in the project. They just cannot unilaterally come in and say we're going to raise Shasta Dam. So they, the local agency they're working with is Westland's Water District. Yep. which is, you know, around the Fresno area. And it would need more water for them, theoretically, but then if they, if they can't move that water across the Delta, yeah. <laughs> then, well, then they're not going to get it. No. And we have all this flux with the Delta Tunnel project, which is two tunnels and now one tunnel, yeah. and there are those who are saying it will never get built. So, oh, you know. That's true. Well, we're up against our uh, commercial breaks. And again, we thank you for joining us today, as always. And again, to our listeners, if they want the best in California water news, go to mavensnotebook.com. Please go check it out. You can subscribe to that and get it every single day. It's an awesome way to find out what's really going on. No BS, no nothing. Just right to the facts. We appreciate it. Chris, thank you again for joining us. Thank you, guys. Good evening. Have great, a great good week, evening. Chris. Say hi to your family. Good night. And uh, we'll be back in just a minute. If you knew there was a pipe cement that works better than the one you're currently using, is better for you and the environment, and costs the same or less, would you buy it? Oh, well, no-brainer, right? It is Ryan here, and I have a question for you. What do you do when you win? Like, are you a fist pumper? A woohooer, a hand clapper, a high fiver. I kind of like the high five, but if you want to hone in on those winning moves, check out Chumba Casino. At chumbacasino.com, choose from hundreds of social casino style games for your chance to redeem serious cash prizes. There are new game releases weekly, plus free daily bonuses. So don't wait. Start having the most fun ever at chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. DTW, void, we're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus. Weld on, the trusted leader in solvent cements for over 60 years, is pleased to introduce a new line of solvent cements that does all that. Introducing the EcoSeries line of solvent cements for PVC piping systems. Not only does it work great and set fast, it also has 30% lower solvent emissions and less smelly fumes, a better workplace environment when you're installing pipes. But don't just take our word for it. EcoSeries products are the only solvent cements that are Green Seal certified for environmental innovation for effective performance, improved working conditions, and for use with potable water. Now available in a medium-bodied, fast-setting blue formula, 905 Eco, and a regular-bodied, fast-setting clear formula, 900 Eco. Pick up a can today from your local distributor and see, smell, and feel the difference, just like Joe Sweat, president of Sunrise Irrigation, did. He said, after using Weldon's 905 Eco, we immediately noticed the application was smooth and there was noticeably less odor than other blue solvent cements on the market. The guys love it. To learn more about eco-solvent cements from Weldon, visit the website at www.weldon.com or call the technical service hotline at 877-477-8327. That's 877-477-8327. KCAA Loma Linda, 1050 AM, K292FQ Riverside, and K293CF Moreno Valley. Time to take a water break and talk some water. Irrigation. Such a refreshing topic. As more and more markets face water restrictions, your customers may be hungry, or should I say thirsty, for water saving products. For new installations, add options like drip irrigation, controllers that respond to weather data, pressure regulating heads, or heads with check valves. They all provide easy ways to differentiate your bids and win more jobs. Or for an extra stream of revenue, offer existing customers upgrades like high efficiency nozzles, rotary nozzles, or Wi-Fi based controllers. Because when you help your customers save water, you make a world of difference for the earth and your bottom line at the same time. We'll drink to that. Welcome back to the second half of the Water Zone, and uh, today we have a special segment. It's our
Well, welcome back to the second half of the Water Zone, and uh, today we have a special segment. It's our Ag segment, and I'm going to turn it over to our Ag host, Ms. Inge Biscona. And Inge, I'll let you uh, do the honors with your guest. Hey, thank you again, uh, Rob. It's great to be here. And even though this is uh, an Ag show, I think this will be um, a show that will be of interest to everybody um, in the country, both uh, urbanites and uh, farmers alike. Uh, we have a very special guest. His name is Dr. Don Klein, and we will be talking about um, United States water and his perspective from uh, our nation's capital in Washington, D.C., as a water leader there. So I'd like to welcome uh, Don to the show. Welcome, Don. Thank you. Well, I, um, I'd like to let people know what your background is because it's um, – uh, very impressive, and um, you're a guy that knows a lot about the weather is, is basically what the deal is, and we're going to be talking a lot about water and weather for the next half hour. So for those um, in our listening audience, uh, Don holds a Ph.D., an M.S., and a B.S. degree from the Department of Geography at the University of Colorado in Boulder, and he's responsible for the United States Geologic Survey, otherwise known as USGS, uh, for their research, monitoring, assessment, and prediction of our nation's water resources. So, as you can imagine, that's kind of a tall order. <laughs> so, Don joined USGS in 2016 following a 19-year career with the National Oceanic and Atmospheric Administration's National Weather Service, otherwise known as NOAA, where he served as director of the National Water Center and was the chief of the hydrology laboratory and was the director of the National Operation Hydrologic Remote Sensing Center. So lots of experience in uh, research and managing our water resources. So, Don, tell us a little bit about how you ended up working in this water space and a little bit about your background, please. Uh, sure. Well, I guess I'm lucky, first of all. It's, uh, when you go to school, you never quite know what you're going to wind up doing. You just hope for it, but uh, I I found myself in the right place at the right time. Um, I I got pretty interested in water as a as a young person. In 1972, my uh, family was caught up in a major flash flooding in Rapid City, South Dakota, and ever since kind of have been interested in that sort of thing. And hmm. when I went to university. Uh, of Colorado, I found that uh, I could actually study that and become a, a water scientist, and that's more or less what I did. And uh, after I finished my graduate work, I found um, myself working for the National Weather Service in Minnesota uh, doing hydrologic remote sensing, basically looking at snowpack and water resources from space. And um, one thing sort of led to another. I wound up in Washington, D.C., uh, running uh, research laboratories for NOAA and eventually the National Water Center, a new facility in Alabama, and then got to come over here to USGS where there's even lots more research in, in water than, than in NOAA and uh, really covers the entire gamut of water resources science here in USGS. So I'm pretty fortunate to have navigated my way through all that and wound up in a place where I can really turn 360 degrees any day of the week and see just about any gamut of water resources in the United States. Wow. That's uh, that's pretty cool that you knew as a kid that um, you wanted to be involved in this. Um, you, you knew what you wanted to be when you grew up, when you were little. That, <laughs> that's quite quite fortunate. Uh, although the, the, flush, the flash flood doesn't sound too great, but um, I guess it was a a way to prepare for drought as well. Uh, well, when I heard you speak at the Water Resources Congressional Summit um, in D.C. in March, it's uh, something that you keynoted, um, you said that the, the USGS's water resources mission area provides society with the information it needs on water quantity and quality across the nation. So tell us a little bit about that charge. How, how, um, how do you do that? Um, well, as you mentioned earlier, it's a tall order. Um, we we basically, I guess it starts with a couple different approaches to thinking about this. It starts with people. We have about 30 
700 people across the country in, in the water mission of USGS. We have a footprint in every state. We have state water science centers, um, and we have research labs and um, our headquarters facility here in Western Virginia. And in in general, the work we do falls into two big categories. One is collecting data, and the other is doing science studies and research. Um, okay. We do uh, <clears throat> we essentially cover almost every facet of of water science in terms of our monitoring. Uh, we measure and monitor groundwater, surface water stream flow. Uh, we do special measurements when there are storms or floods, for example. Uh, we can go out in the flood. We have scientists that will actually wade out into floodwaters uh, to make special measurements so that the measurements are accurate during the flood. We do a lot of work after floods to go back and measure how high the water was, um, things like that. We do a lot of remote sensing of water characteristics, the velocity of water in streams, for example. Um, and then we get into other aspects of, of things in the water quality realm where we measure all sorts of water quality parameters. Um, some of the typical ones that people might be familiar with, like nutrients that run off from agricultural areas, but also we specialize in very low detection limits of, of things that might become a emerging water problem, water quality problem, uh, but are very hard to detect. And um, so we, we really run the gamut there. Um, our <coughs> we have a program, really two fundamental programs. Um, one is focused on the monitoring and one is focused on what we call water availability and use. And USGS defines water availability as having the quantity and quality of water necessary to support human and ecosystem needs. And hmm. that takes us down a path of really the science studies. Um, we, we collect the measurements, but then we analyze the measurements to really understand what's happening with water, where it's moving, um, what it's uh, essentially what it's moving through, and what kinds of uh, chemistry or contaminants or things like that it might be picking up along the way. Yeah. Uh, that basically takes us through just about every type of water science you can imagine from, you mentioned the weather, from precipitation and snowfall and those sorts of things, to evapotranspiration and soil moisture, permafrost, wetlands, groundwater, aquifers, stormwater, lakes, reservoirs. Uh, we even get into some uh, estuary work um, um, in our nation's estuaries around the country. Yeah, so way beyond just um, the typical consumer's uh, tap in the kitchen or <laughs> uh, or the pump on the farmer's farm. A um, lot involved in uh, getting getting water to us. Um, well, you also talked about a 30-year outlook that was recently conducted by the National Academy of Sciences, and you were involved in that. And uh, why don't you share with our listening audience what you shared with us in D.C., what the major takeaways were from that study? Sure. The, we asked the so the National Academy, the National Academy of Sciences conducts studies by request, and um, we asked them to take a look at. Um, what they thought the nation's major water resource challenges would be, um, but we asked them to get out their crystal ball and look out 20 to 30 years. Uh, yep. We're going through um, changes in our organization, hiring new people, thinking about our programs for the future. We really wanted to get some guidance from the Academy on what should we be focusing on so that we're prepared for addressing water challenges of, in essentially the next generation. And the Academy put together really a blue ribbon panel of experts from around the country, um, even internationally. They brought in some folks from Canada. And uh, they got out the crystal ball and they looked into it and 
um, maybe not too surprisingly, although we didn't know when we asked them, but they came back with, they think that the challenges that we're going to see in the next couple of decades are very much the same challenges that we're seeing now. Um, so they didn't come back and say, here's some completely new thing we've never seen before. Um, but they also said that because of things like population growth and migration of people into water-stressed areas, uh, the southwest, for example, and other things, factors like climate change, that these problems that we're familiar with today are just going to become more acute and more pressing, uh, and the consequences will be more significant. Mm -hmm. So the good news for us is that we're already focusing on on most of these challenges, but we're going to need to step up our game, so to speak, over the next couple of decades to really be ready to address them when the when the consequences are perhaps more dire. Yes, and I, as I recall, um, you were saying what we need to do is gather gather data better, and then which kind of leads into my next question also is um, dealing with the people aspect with so many people retiring. You called it the age of retirement and getting the right people in place to handle these challenges over the next uh, generation or two. What, what's happening there? Um, well, the, even today, when we think about water challenges we have today, we're data limited, and uh, we really have to start figuring out ways to collect more data, more water information for both surface water, groundwater, and water quality. Um, there's, uh, we operate about 8,200 year-round stream gauges across the country uh, where stream flow is monitored essentially 24-7, 365, but there's 30 million stream reaches in the country. Wow. Up being something like two one hundredths of one percent uh, that we're monitoring. We have um, about twenty thousand groundwater wells across the country, but if you divide that by how many acres there are, it's pretty sparse sampling. So there's there's much more that we don't know about um, the status and amount of water that we have than what we do know, and is things become more acute in the future, we're just really going to need to know more information. I sort of use the example of if you're driving into the desert and a sign says the last gas station or next gas station is, you know, 200 miles or something. If you've got a full tank of gas, you don't worry about it too much. But if you're near empty, you're looking at your, your gauge all the time trying to figure out uh, if you're going to make it or not. And, that's, yeah. that's analogous to water information. The, the tighter it gets and the more uh, stressed water supplies get, the more we need to know about it in order to um, plan for uh, its use or infrastructure or any other decisions we make. As we yeah, because obviously uh, running out of water just is not an option, um, right, for, <laughs> for, our, for our civilization to survive, right? Yeah, that's that's generally a bad thing that we don't want to see happen. <laughs> yeah, that's about yeah. Uh, the age of retirement, and we we're in an interesting situation where, um, on one hand, we're seeing unprecedented retirement and and a loss of our workforce. Um, the federal budget was much bigger in the '80s, and there was a lot of hiring done then. And those people that are, were hired then are leaving now. Um, so there's a lot of new hiring to do, and at the same time, we're really going through a technological revolution. We're all familiar with it, our smartphones and smart assistants and everything else is connected. And So it's really a different world moving in the next couple of decades from a science and technology perspective than it has been for the last two or three. So as we think about these water challenges and we think about hiring a new workforce, to um, step in and step up and address these challenges, it's going to be a much more technologically driven uh, uh, landscape than it has been. We have to factor that into how we uh, build our new workforce. Yeah, you probably need people who can kind of run the machines. I don't think machines are going to run everything, but there's more 
more machines running stuff. So get the right people to run the machines. Is that kind of a good analogy? Yeah, I think that's a good analogy. We're gonna, you know, we're never gonna have as many water observations as we would like, but our models are getting better and better, and we're able to use um, AI more than ever before. Uh, so we can do things like machine learning, or we can combine data models and powerful computers to sort of fill in some of the gaps where we might not be able to provide the observations we would like. Yeah, I think yeah. that's going to become the future of, it's really the synthesis and integration of everything that we have, not just one part of it, like just our stream gauges or just our groundwater wells. It's going to be the observations and the models and the machines. And it's going to take some pretty smart folks to come on board and help us get to there. Yeah, uh, I can imagine. And hopefully, are they readily available Do do in your recruitment? Um, are we ready for that? Do we have the right people coming up through the ranks? Yeah, we, they, they are. I mean, we're seeing, um, we're seeing people come out of school now with, with skills I never would have imagined when I came out of school. And, um, yeah. <laughs> it, it's really, um, they're, they're used to doing things that we only dreamed of 20 years ago. So, yeah, they're yeah. out there, and it's, it's a matter of getting, finding them and uh, getting them on board. Getting the right people in the right chair. Well, that's encouraging, and you know, you also spoke about another thing that was quite encouraging, that five of our nation's secretaries are beginning to work together more on water. You know, Secretary of Interior, Interior uh, NOAA, the Corps of Engineers, uh, USDA, and EPA. Um, tell us a little bit about um, why they need to work together and, and how they will be in the future. Okay. Um so we have, across the federal sector, federal agencies, there's something like 24 agencies that have some sort of water mission, um, in addition to the role of states uh, to protect water resources. The federal agencies have different statutory directives to help safeguard the nation's water supplies in various ways. But of those 24, there's kind of a big five or six that are or the, the largest one, and um, they've been, the, the, these departments have been working together the last year or so to really sort out how to streamline and coordinate better uh, the various activities across the federal agencies uh, so that we can make some of the progress we need to make for the next couple of decades. It's kind of tied back to being prepared for future water resources challenges. Yeah, well, that's just amazing. There's 24 federal agencies that work with water, and um, I, I, I don't think people realize that. But um, but water threads through everything. I mean, it's it's necessary for industry, it's for commerce, for you know, natural environment, and everything. So I guess it shouldn't be a, a surprise. Well, that's really encouraging that those five entities are working together. It's always struck me odd that. Um, we didn't really have even a Secretary of Water. <laughs> you know, it seems like um, it, that should be a, a devoted area considering how important it is to our daily lives. Now that well, that idea has come up from time to time over, you know, many decades, but uh, it, it, it is what it is still. And But we do a lot of things to try to work together better. We've had activities, for example, in the flooding arena, uh, USDS, NOAA, and the Army Corps of Engineers have been working really closely together for well, over a decade now, um, trying to integrate our activities and make sure that we're working together really closely, um, sharing information, uh, things like that. And there's other similar activities in different parts of the water arena. So um, yeah, there is a lot yeah. of coordination, but this this new level at the uh, assistant secretary level across these five departments is sort of the latest and I guess a higher level of that coordination than we've seen yet. Yeah, and that sounds like a good thing. So that's encouraging too. Uh-huh. So, so another thing I wanted to ask you about was um, something that we in the West are 
very interested in and it's come to people's attention more recently is the topic of atmospheric rivers. Oh. Um, yeah, so uh, tell us a little bit more more about how the recognition that they exist uh, came about and how important they are to the West water supply and... Uh, any ways that we could corral that that sucker and uh, help it help it maybe replenish our groundwater supplies that get depleted during our droughts? Well, corralling it might be tough, but I can tell you. <laughs> yeah, <that>. yeah. <laughs> I tell I've you heard people trying bit. to. Well, so we've known for a long time. It's been probably the last twenty years or so that the term atmospheric rivers has been coined. Um, but what what it amounts to is that most water vapor transport in the atmosphere in the mid-latitude, so the United States basically, um, actually occurs in pretty thin ribbons uh, that are fairly well confined in space, and they can go hundreds of thousands of miles and transport that way. So we Hmm. sort of think of the atmosphere as being full of water vapor, and it is, but there are these conveyor belts or ribbons or rivers of moisture where um, really most of the the water vapor is actually transported. Hmm. And that happens around the world. When those rivers of water vapor rise, when they run into a mountain range like the Sierra Nevada, for example, or they can rise just through other atmospheric motions, you get concentrated precipitation. We see that in the west. We see that in the southeast. We see it in several parts of the country. It comes down to, especially in the west, um, often the difference between basically a below-average water year and above-average water year may come down to just one storm, one event. And yeah. often, often those events are related to atmospheric rivers. So uh, if it happens to land in your area, you get a great year, and if it happens to go north or south, you don't. And the issue, since this is such an important source of, of uh, water resources, has been can we predict them? Uh, can we predict yeah. they're going to land and make landfall? And that, that's been getting better and better. Um, 20 years ago, what we knew these existed, but it was almost impossible to say where they might uh, strike land. The, we could see them from space and satellites and in our models, but when it came down to was all that rain or snow going to land in this basin or that basin, we really didn't know. But that prediction is getting better and better. Uh, we call that seasonal to subseasonal precipitation or S2S. And okay. um, there's been huge improvements over the last decade or so in being able to do that. Still not perfect. Um, still a lot of uncertainty associated with um, exactly where they will go. Um, but as we get better and better at that, there's more potential for trying to corral it, as you say, to um, to, to plan for the fact that we think that plume of moisture is going to make landfall in this particular basin or this particular part of the mountain range, and so that area should expect a better-than-average water year. So that might help the people who are managing the level of water in the dams in the Sierras, for instance, of whether you know, to adhere to their standards of letting water out to prepare for um, oncoming rain if the rain's not coming and they would keep it? Is that, is that how that would practically uh, help us manage water to by knowing whether these things are going to hit or not? That's the idea. I mean, the, there's, we're starting to experiment with the idea of what we call forecast-informed reservoir operations, or biro, and... As forecasts get better and you have more confidence in them, it becomes more feasible, um, less risky, you might say, to use those forecasts in your reservoir operations. There's mm-hmm. no risk, and it basically boils down to if you think you're going to get a lot of rain in a 
an atmospheric river, so you release a lot of water out of your reservoir, and then that rain doesn't come. It goes 100 miles north or south of you. You've got a problem. Yep. Um, if you don't release it, and it turns out the rain does come, you may be fine. You just didn't get the benefit of, of having that water released. So right. there's, there's right. a risk associated with it, and the predictions and forecasts certainly aren't perfect. But there's starting to be experimentation um, in a few places with that concept of can we use forecasts, can we rely on them enough to actually manage our water supply. It'll take some time to experiment with that and learn from it and see what it really takes to do that well. Well, it seems like that would be a really, really important area to um for us to get better at because that's that's what it's all about here in the West at least is you know to manage the water for the benefit of everybody and the environment um, making as much use of that rainfall event when it comes whether it's to recharge groundwater or keep uh, river flows uh, going or getting getting water to the farms and to the people Absolutely. so kudos on you for working on that I hope we get better and better at it and um, um, well, so um, I guess my last question, and then I'd like to ask you if, if if you have anything you'd like to add. But um, you know, I've always been curious. You know, there's droughts, and then there's aridification, which pretty much means that. Well, you tell us what does it mean. What's what's the difference between a drought and uh, aridification when um, when a drought really means the end of civilization? <laughs> well. It, um there is a difference. So we, we think of most of the western United States, for example, as being an arid climate. We have deserts and pretty low rainfall compared to the east. And if you look at that from space, you can even see it. That most of the eastern U.S. is green and most of the western U.S. is brown. And the only stuff that's green in the western U.S. is usually either mountains. Well, we had, we had to go. Sorry, we had to cut off on that, but we are up against our NBC national news. We got to go do that, but we do want you to come back, and we'll get that last tell of it the next time. And uh, Chris, you have a great week, and remember what we got to tell. Everybody.